get what you want, you don't want it. If I gave you the moon, you'd grow tired of it soon. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Momus Report podcast. My name is Emmett Hoguna and tonight I'm talking about a particular documentary called The Search for Wang Wang. Now, a few weeks ago I had the pleasure of attending a screening of some select footage from this documentary. I only had to go to Richmond to see this, but my guest here tonight actually has been all the way to the Philippines and back and a bunch of times and he's been through all sorts of shenanigans to bring this movie to you and he's here to talk about the Kickstarter campaign to actually get it out there and in your greedy little hands. Thanks Andrew Leavold for joining us and uh, chatting oh, to us about Search Now this is a product of a very personal obsession. This is how you advertise the film. Uh, maybe you could tell people exactly what the search for Wang Wang is about. Well, I, I guess it starts all the way back in the early '90s, back in the dark, dark days of VHS, <laughs> uh, and and before the internet, really, because you know the the internet plays an important part in the in the story. All of a sudden, I'm sitting in my lounge room watching a videotape that a friend of mine has procured for me. Uh, at, at that time, I was still putting together my cult video shop called Trash Video. Mm. And um, and uh, he said, well, you like crazy kung fu films and, you know, you have that weird midget fixation. What if I was to show you the ultimate, uh, you know, two foot nine James Bond from the Philippines experience called For Your Height Only? And so I, I thought, this sounds unreal. And 90 minutes later, I, I was on the floor with my jaw somewhere in the next room. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I literally was shaking. I, I just couldn't believe what I'd just seen. I mean, not only was it a two foot nine James Bond running around the Philippines, you know, bitch slapping a, a, a three foot Bond villain called Mr. Giant and zipping around Hidden Island on a jetpack, <laughs> that sort of stuff. But also, it had been dubbed by what could only be described as a group of cultural terrorists who had who had clearly you know uh, rolled up the original script put it in a in a jetpack and <laughs> scooted it off to hidden island and then just sat on the spot you know getting drunk and stoned and and making up the the script from scratch uh, you know there were there were peter Laurie impressions there were there were people doing humphrey bogart there were just the most absurd lines like one day you're going to wake up and find yourself dead, you know, and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of dough in this, though, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. <laughs> I just remember the night I went, you showed the, the screening here in, in Melbourne, and you showed something yeah. from your documentary. You, afterwards, you screened The Wild Wild Wang, I think it was. And yes. uh, what I loved about it was you have this initial story of Wang Wang and his partner visiting this town to avenge the wrongs done to the people there. It, it, it's like a quasi-Western. And then all of a sudden we have ninjas. And then we have a romance. And then we have, you know, all these elements thrown into a pot together. Oh, yeah, it's, it's pure masala filmmaking, as the Indians conceive it. Uh, you know, if, if, it, if it sounds funny at the time, just throw it in the pot. <laughs> and so, of course, back uh, in the early 90s, there was only one film as far as I was concerned. Uh, there was only one Wang Wing film. And so I started posing the questions, you know, as, as the guy at the start of Searching for Sugar Man does. <laughs> you know, is my, is my idol still alive? You know, uh, 
uh, if he's no longer with us, can I find out the circumstances of his death? You know, why did he stop making movies? You know, what what was his real name? You know, where did he sit as far as Philippine culture um, was concerned? You know, were there more movies? More importantly, you know, was there another Wang Wang fix? Yeah. Um, and a couple of couple of years later, a collector friend of mine from the states sent me a French dubbed film called Rien n'est impossible, you know, nothing is impossible. And it was a French dubbed Wang Wang film, which <laughs> I looked at and I thought, well, this, this is weird. You know, Wang Wang's now on a tiny little motorbike, uh, you know, scooting across a ravine and, and on a tight wire with, <laughs> you know, walking between buildings and sliding down a chute onto his miniature motorbike and scooting off. I thought this this is brilliant. I'm going to have to relearn high school French again. But <laughs> luck would have it. I, I got one of my customers, French speaker, to uh, translate it for a stack of free rentals. And uh, all of a sudden, there was me and a couple of uh, drinking buddies running up and down the Australian uh, East Coast, redubbing it live <laughs> as we would. We would sit around, get drunk as monkeys, and then pretty much look at the written page of script and go, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and we did a for your height only on it and just started making shit up as we went along. Hmm. So uh, I, I, you you know Fred Negro, the cartoonist. He was one of the voices on The Impossible Kid back in, I think, 2002 hmm. uh, at, at the Melbourne screening. We, we had a lot of fun with those. Anyway, eventually an English language copy turned up in a video shop in Sweden. Like I, I rang the guy. I, I said, is, "Is this what I think it is?" He's like, "I'm not sure. What are you What are you talking about?" I said, "Can Can you put the the receiver up to the TV screen and let me listen uh, to the first five minutes of the film?" He goes, oh, I "Anyway, turned it on, and I could hear the familiar opening strains, but with this voice, you know, that sounded like Charles Aznavour, Agent Double O speaking." I thought, "Jesus Christ." Mm. This is this is also been dubbed in another weird parallel universe where where they look at a midget and think clearly this man sound, should sound like Charles Aznavour. So that turned up in the mail. The Wang Wang cult grew. We started screening it up and down the the west coast in its English form, and uh, all that time, you know, I kept thinking of a dream I had back in the the nineties, where I was in Manila with a phone in one hand and a video camera in the other, and I, I was saying on the phone to some cultural institution, my name is Andrew Liebold, I'm a filmmaker from Australia, I'm here in Manila doing a film about Wang Wang. Woke up and went, fuck me, that's an amazing idea, and then filed it away for the next 10 years. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm at a film festival in Brisbane screening chunks of Pinoy films, uh, I've got the star of Cleopatra Wong sitting next to me, uh, you know, just before a screening of Cleo Wong at the Brisbane International Film Festival. Now, that was a, an act of cultural terrorism. And uh, all of a sudden, a guy comes up, he bounds up to me and says, uh, you love Wang Wang, I love Wang Wang. I thought, Jesus, what's this fucking weird foreigner trying to come on to me or something? <laughs> it turns out he was the, the head of the Cinemanilla Film Festival in Manila, and uh, said, if you fly yourself to Manila, I will put you on. And I thought, well, if I take a video camera, yeah. I can start asking every Filipino that I encounter, do you know Wang Wang? I think this is an important point to stress. 
right now as well, because you're talking about hunting these films down and trekking around Australia, redubbing these movies like the Hercules picture from years back, and you're yeah. you're doing all this stuff. But at the time of release, when the Wang Wang pictures were being made by is the Cabales was the name of the producers? Uh, yes, yeah, Peter and Cora Cabales. They were making money hand over fist, weren't they? I mean, these were huge hits. These were huge box office films. Yeah, it it, turn, it turns out. I mean, I I had to go to Manila to find this out. Mm. Um, that uh, for your height only, the film that I'd seen, you know, a multi generation dub off a, an Australian VHS, was in fact the only film that sold of note at the 1982 Manila International Film Festival. Now, this was an enormous do uh, mm. put on by the Marcos family, and in particular Amelda, First Lady Amelda Marcos to try to export Philippine culture and in particular Philippine cinema to an international audience. And so she invited George Hamilton and Brooke Shields and uh, David Lean. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, God. You know yeah. John Fickenheimer, some serious heavyweights. Yeah. Uh, in cinema at the time, maybe not Brooke Shields, but, uh, you know. Well, Blue Lagoon um, had just come out. Surely she was a major icon at the time. Well, you know, maybe she needed a model for her next boob job. There you go, yes. But uh, <laughs> whatever her reasoning, she, she set up uh, a, a film market uh, at, at the same time as the film festival, and everyone there expected their classy A-list films to sell to France and to West Germany and to, mm. to Holland and places like that. And, and, and I remember interviewing Imelda Marcos's daughter, Aimee, and she said, you know, imagine to our horror, the only film that sold was a miniature goon film. You know, a, a two foot nine kung fu film, which would have been embarrassing to anyone with any kind of cultural agenda. <laughs> so yeah, all of a sudden, Wang Wang became this pop icon. Hmm. I mean, he, he was the guy who was selling you know, Pinoy B films basically to an international audience. Um, I talked to a guy, um, Anthony Maharaj. Uh, he ended up making B films with Sirio Santiago um, later on in the 80s. But at the time, he was a, a, a movie distributor in the West Indies. He picked up For Your Height Only at that Manila International Film Festival. And I've got him on camera saying this. He took it back to Trinidad. He opened it next to The Empire Strikes Back. Hmm. Christmas too and he said and he made a killing hmm. he made a fortune and it outgrossed the empire strikes back in trinidad can you believe that <laughs> phenomenal yeah so that, yeah. the film went to mexico the middle east uh you know it, it was a cheap film and so it would have sold modestly you know for hmm. a modest amount but to uh developing nations and to, to countries with smaller cinema industries it was a film that could be exploited. It was a James Bond knockoff ostensibly for children, although it does have tits in it. Yes. Um, and uh, and it, it sold. And um, uh, so really, you know, inadvertently, Wang Wang had become one of the greatest of Philippine exports, you know, since uh, Melda Marcos's shoe collection. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, go figure. <laughs> And that, that, like, just for those listening, uh, one of the great thrills of your documentary is you've got this fantastic footage of Imelda Marcos meeting her in person and uh, attending yeah. her palatial estate and uh, the amazing 
birthday celebrations in her honor and all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have stuff. I, I know you have to. You have to wonder what the hell am I doing hanging out? <laughs> with but it. I mean, I. It was just one of those ideas. I mean, I interviewed Imi, the daughter, and she said, "One day I will deliver my mother's head on a plate for you," because she knew I wanted to sit Mrs. Marcos down and ask her. Are the rumors true? I mean, there are so many urban legends surrounding Wang Wang, and one of them was that he was a frequent visitor to the Marcos Palace hmm. uh, dur during their presidency, and, a, and, and particularly around that um, 1982 Manila International Film Festival. Yeah. And uh, so I thought it, 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 it might be true. It could be true. So uh, I managed to track Imelda's people down, and they said, well, send us a list of questions. Uh, Mrs. Marcos will consider uh, an on, an on camera interview, and uh, I got the go ahead <laughs> amazingly. And uh, but they said you're going to have to go to a birthday party in a locus norte up the top northwest end of the Philippines. I went, oh no, <laughs> I have to go to a birthday party. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, so I took a couple of friends. I thought, no, I've, I've got to have I've got to have backup on this. Mm. And. Um, a couple of days later, I was uh, sitting in a faux 50s diner in a, in a hotel in uh, Lawag, the capital of Ilocos Norte. Um, Aimi Marcos, the daughter, is the, is the provincial governor, and so she has her own palace in Lawag. And um, I was sitting there looking across the faux 50s diner, and I could see Aimi on the other side eating a burger. And um, so I thought, no, this is impossible. So I waved at her and she, she waved back and she motioned me over and she said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm going to your mum's birthday party. And she went, oh, well, that's weird. <laughs> I went, yeah, it is a bit. But uh, anyway, a couple of hours later, I, I, I thought there's no way that um, this is going to, at least I'll have, you know, a, a failed pub story to talk mm. uh, about. About the the weekend, I almost met an Imelda. Anyway, the Imelda's people got on the phone a couple of hours later and said, "Come to the palace." Mm. Soon after that, I had my camera on and I said, "May I ask you about Wang Wang?" And she said, "The midget." <laughs> uh, yeah, the the two foot nine James Bond. Do you remember him? Yes. I said, "Is it true he was a, a frequent visitor to the palace?" Yes. I thought, "My God." <laughs> This is brilliant. I said, why? And she said, because we loved him. Mm. Because he made us laugh. <laughs> and she then launched into this absolutely incredible off-the-cuff soliloquy. Yeah. She said, uh, he overcame his disabilities. He overcame such incredible hardship mm. to become something extraordinary. And for that reason, my husband and I loved him. And I thought, my God, that is the money shot. Yep. For the documentary, it it doesn't get better than that. However, mm. next day I'm riding around in a bulletproof limousine, getting a guided tour of Ilocos Norte, which included a visit to her frozen husband's uh, body in a glass <laughs> coffin, and I managed to sneak a shot of her kissing the side of the glass coffin. That is the money shot. That <laughs> is the moment where my life cannot get any weirder from this moment onwards. <laughs> it, it, it's extraordinary footage because you actually, you showed that unedited, that entire visit, or most yeah. of it at least, that I can tell, at the Richmond minus screen. The minus the interview footage. I mean, yes. that, that's yeah. uh, still on um, MPS. 
She's still working but, on it. But, but the yeah, actual... You, you get the sense of, of the just weird grandeur and, and uh, surreal... Well, that, that's uh, what I was just about to say. You, you've captured surreality in motion. You, that, that's what I loved about it. You hadn't edited it. You just let the camera run, and you showed that sequence yeah. to us. And it was extraordinary. It was his hypnotic to watch it happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it, even at the birthday party, I mean, there's, there's yes. this moment where she's sitting on a throne surrounded by uh, garlands of roses. And every person at the birthday party, and there were hundreds of people, including us sitting up in the VIP section, one table away from the Marcoses. Every one of us got uh, a rose to hand to her. And uh, so it was almost like this pagan scene out of The Wicker Man, where Imelda was was this this kind of, uh, you know, solstice queen, and everyone was handing her a rose. It was quite amazing. And then everyone joined in a a song, and there was outpouring of emotion and... uh, and we thought, my God, the, the the power of the Marcoses, particularly in the in the home province. This was Ferdinand Marcos's hometown of Batak, mm. um, where where uh, even his father was uh, a member of um, mem- member of the Congress uh, back in the 1930s. I mean, this is Marcosville, and the the family still loom large in the um, in the consciousness of of the people, their people. And it's just amazing. I mean, we saw basically a vision of Evita Perón almost at her peak, commanding a room full of people to to exalt her as the most beautiful woman in the world, end quote. Hmm. Albeit, if you look at the sequence, it's in a basketball court, which, but once again, but that's the reality. A basketball court, yeah, and there's a big portrait of uh, Imelda over one of the hoops. <laughs> Uh, no, it's it's fantastic footage, absolutely fantastic footage, and I can't wait to see the finished product yeah. where you yeah, actually, yeah. you can emphasize that, you know, and actually select the key moments because it's just beautiful. Select the key moments, and then you you, you just you have my um you know glib uh, commentary over yeah. the top. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the Gonzo part of the of the search for Wang Wang. I mean, there there are quite a few moments like that. Mm. I think I might have told the story where we were locked in a in a compound full of religious fanatics all exalting the return of um, their most famous dead movie star, um, Fernando Poe Jr., uh, as the second coming of Christ. Did I did I tell you that oh, one? I didn't hear that one. Please go. Oh, well, okay. No, well, that's going in the documentary. Okay, but okay good, good. Say, compound surrounded by barbed wire, uh, a, a hut in the middle of a fake lake, mm. and a bunch of old stunt guys, including, including Weng Weng's co-stars, getting drunk on Brande and then sermonizing. Uh, if, if we didn't do karaoke that night and we didn't do um, Wind of Change by Scorpion, we may never have left that compound alive. <laughs> Luckily, it was a coded message to their CEO, who was the high priest of the um, First Church of Fernando Po Jr., and he believed that uh, we were thus two apostles, Daniel and myself, uh, two apostles to take the word of FDJ back to Australia, which is what I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> Cover your bases. Pascal's no, wager. Make sure no gods could come after you. Exactly. exactly. So my work here on Earth is done. <laughs> there was, we, we have to do that one as a story to camera because there's a, there's a few snapshots and, uh, and the book. Yeah. <laughs> the book that was given to us and that's all. But, I mean, really, stories like that reflect the madness and the chaos and, and the, the sur- surrealism of the... Uh, of, of what you are, what you are able to tap into once you go looking for a particular kind of weirdness, mm. if that. Makes sense. 
Yeah, no, and and I think that's that's what's fascinating about it. But what also is fascinating is that Wang Wang's story is it's a very poignant story. It's a very sad story. On top of all the weirdness, and top of all the eccentricity, yeah. and all the rest of it, yeah. you still have the tale of this little yeah. little fella being exploited quite harshly, and yeah. the folks behind him making a lot of money out of him. And I think you you interview Eddie Nickhart, isn't it? And he he's yeah. quite he's quite upfront about what was going on at the time. Uh, very, very much. In fact, I, I've just edited another sequence which comes before um, the visit to Eddie Nickart, mm. uh, who was the, who was the director of uh, at least six of uh, Wang Wang's films. So at least mm. half of his films were by this former stunt guy turned director. Mm. And um, the, the the sequence where I first meet Eddie, I mean, I, I, I literally have the moment on camera where he walks up to a, a, a coffee shop in the middle of a shopping center. And there's the guy from One Armed Executioner sitting at the table, and there's a former Mr. Philippines, and there's a couple of old goon stuntmen, and uh, they're all sitting around swapping stories about Wang Wang. All of a sudden, Eddie Nicker comes up, and they're saying, Eddie, you know, we haven't seen you for years. Hmm. It's, it's basically a reunion of of, uh, of old action guys who who now turn to, you know, very specific stories about Wang Wang. And one of them was... Uh, the the idea that um, his uh, his helpers or or his uh, almost like adopted parents the the Caballes, mm. um, basically took Wang Wang under their arm when he was about eighteen and he was discovered at a, a karate studio in his in his poor neighborhood and uh, they thought that they would be able to enter show business and uh, start making movies with Wang Wang as their their novelty act or their protege. Hmm. So, uh, so they uh, hit upon this uh, after a couple of failed efforts. They hit upon uh, the formula of having him play a two foot nine, nine James Bond called Agent Double O. Everyone thinks awesome idea. Dick Randall, the exploitation producer, manages to sell the film all over the world. Um, they end up making two mansions out of it, hmm. and so the story goes: Wang Wang gets pocket money. Yeah. which, because he has the mental age of maybe about eight or nine, decides to give away to all of his uh, you know, friends and, and hangers-on. So the family sees nothing of it. Wang yeah. Wang ends up with none of it. Um, he's paid a pittance. Even Eddie is paid something like you know, less than $500 for his part in the film yeah. to, to, uh, to direct it and to uh, coordinate it. And all of a sudden, you know, the producers have two mansions. And uh, then when they decide to stop making films, because Cora, the wife, goes into politics, into local mm. politics, uh, all of a sudden Wang Wang's sent home to his, um, you know, to, to the same house that he was born in and grew up in. And uh, all of a sudden he, ha he has no career. Uh, the show business have lost interest in him or, or they've lost track of him. Pop culture moves on. The novelty act is, is done, and there's another 10 years before he gets ill and passes away. So in that 10-year period, you see, you know, a little guy who's outlived his usefulness and is now, you know, more or less rotting, uh, you know, and, and decaying. He's fall literally falling to pieces mm. um, uh, after a stroke. Um, and then he passes away, and it's incredibly sad to know that uh, the manager isn't even around when he's in the hospital dying. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, when you, when you join the dots together, 
it's uh, it is really quite a heartbreaking story. Now, I I didn't want to paint the Cabaliers as villains, mm. so I went I went looking for them. Unfortunately, Peter passed away less than six months after I started going to the Philippines. Right. Uh, Cora, on the other hand. I managed to get her phone number in the States mm-hmm. and I said, uh, look, I'd love to do an interview with you. And she said, well, if you want to be interviewed, you come to me. Mm-hmm. I said, is that a challenge? And she said, yes. And uh, six months later, I was uh, in California and I spent three weeks ringing her number every day and leaving the same message. Cora, I'm here in California. I would really love to see you. Really like to get your side of the Wang Wang saga. And mm-hmm. three weeks, she didn't pick the phone up, and I ended up going back to Australia with nothing more than footage of me sitting in the gutter in Hollywood on the last day, desperately trying to call Fresno, saying, Cora, can you please, <laughs> can you please pick up the phone and uh, tell me where to go? Yeah. Uh, well, inadvertently, she did. She did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Boulevard of Broken Dreams right there, you know. But tell me but, about it. I mean, yeah. boy, what a more pointed metaphor, you know, it's not even a metaphor, it's a, it's a kick in the teeth. Yeah. So, um, so that that's where Cora stands at the moment, and right. uh, unfortunately I haven't got her side of the story, so it it, it does seem like a very one-sided uh, story against the Cabalias, but when you have people who claim to be, you know, clo- uh, as good as close family, all saying they did him wrong, mm. then, then what can you do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. But it, it is a very sad story, a very, uh, very heart-wrenching story, particularly when over the course of the 90 minutes of the documentary, you really do go from an image of a karate-kicking midget, mm. you know, which seems absurd and, uh, and, and uh, such, a, such a lark. And by the end of 90 minutes, you really have come to know him as a little person and, and uh, to be privy to some quite you know, poignant and private moments in his life. And you do feel, I would assume, you know, if, if you have any kind of fucking soul, you mm. do feel a, you do feel a connection to him and, and you, you are moved by his story. Mm. And I really do believe that um, by the end of the film, there's a dry eye in the house. You know, you people have no fucking soul. Yeah. <laughs> I was, like I said, I saw the footage you shown and um, this childlike person, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. To think of them caught in the center of this is just heartbreaking, as you say. And and also, I think another point that that should be made is uh, we're we're talking about exploitation cinema, and yeah. that's something in recent years that's been really popularized by you know Quentin Tarantino's popularized exploitation cinema and uh, the Wu Tang yeah. Clan really pushed the Shaw Brothers movies, you know, the old Shaw Brother sound bites oh, sure. their songs, all that kind of stuff. So we're all familiar with exploitation cinema. Exploitation yeah. cinema tends to be niche, tends to be small scale. Uh, fair. Mm. It, it tends to be limited runs, limited awareness yeah. in the public. You're talking it, about... A it fran- should be low budget and not, uh, you know, uh, Miramax and uh, Weinstein yeah. brothers. Uh, multi, multi-million dollar productions, but that's another story. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, well, uh, yeah, we're not going to get into that. But um, if you look at the Wang Wang story, I mean, the difference yeah. there is the sheer amount of money being earned by this guy. In comparison to those Shaw Brothers productions and whatever Tarantino is rabbiting on today, but Wang Wang, phenomenally successful commercially, and yes, no return. You know that's. I mean, even even the Shaw Brothers employees, they might have been in a factory situation 
Yeah. And they might have been sleeping on the floor of the studio, turning out one film after another. But at least they were employees. At least they got a paycheck. Yeah. And uh, the the difference is that um, in the Philippines, it, it because uh, there is such a disparity between rich and poor, mm. it, it's not a third world country. It, it, it would do the country a great injustice to think of it as a developing nation or a third world country. It's anything but. I mean, this is... This is a, a post-colonial country that yeah. has uh, that has been for hundreds of years under first the Spanish and then the Americans and briefly during World War II under the Japanese. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a country that has such incredible wealth, but it's very poorly distributed and it seems to con be concentrated in the hands of, you know, a very limited number of families and mm -hmm. dynasty, or, or it's almost feudal, you know, in a kind of old Europe kind of way. Mm. Um, and so it, it seems that there are allowances made for people to allow their subjects or their serfs or their, you know, their indentured laborers yeah. to live uh, a hand to mouth existence. It's, yeah. it's almost like that's the way things are. It's the way things have always been. Uh, if you're a, a sort of a richer patron, a patron, mm -hmm. you know, a hacienda owner, uh, you know, a mestizo, part Spanish, uh, kind of, of of noble caste, mm. then then you do have a kind of ownership or it's a perceived ownership over your uh, Indio or your, your uh, native workers. And that attitude has been brought in, unfortunately, into the film industry and uh, it works for some and, you know, not for others. Mm. Some... Um, used to, uh, the, there's a, a term in the film industry called, I'm not sure what it is in Tagalog, but it, it's basically like a, like a, a, a saw motion, you know, where two people hold uh, opposite ends of a, a wood saw and uh, saw a, a log into. There's a, a, a similar uh, image of workers sort of going from one film set to another, maybe three or four times a day. Just just to get a couple of pesos, so that at the end of the day they have enough to eat. Yeah, I mean that's we we can't even imagine that happening uh, in in inverted commas the West. Mm. But but that happens and and it still happens to a certain extent in the Philippines. Yeah, um, and and that was the story in the '60s, the '70s, and the '80s, back when the Philippines were making in excess of 300 feature films a year. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the early 70s, they were making close to 350. These were all on 35 mil. These were all primarily for a Tagalog-speaking audience. And this is just insane, you know, that that many films could be made and that many films could all be making money. Mm. But that that was the culture and, uh, that, that the, the Philippines experienced at that time. Such incredible loyalty to their own film stars and their own film industry. But the film industry survived by paying their stunt guys, you know, the equivalent of a handful of rice a day, uh, paying their bit actors enough, uh, just enough so that they would have to do three or four films, you know, bit parts in three or four films a day just to be able to survive. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty staggering, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And I think what you're focusing on in by concentrating on Wang Wang, you do give a facet of that story there. And that's quite oh sure, Wang yeah. Wang's story is a cipher for yeah. so many different stories about about the way people are treated uh, in in society. You know, the the less fortunate yeah. are 
are treated in a certain way because people allow them to be treated mm. because society kind of uh, looks over them you know not just because they're two foot nine but because you know they may be a little bit too skinny or they don't have enough money or they don't have all their teeth they're mm. not the beautiful mestizos they're not the uh the 140 rich families who control 95 percent of the philippines that kind of thing you know they are the 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 massa they are the 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 mass the mm. um the the uh, the bakia crowd the wooden clog guys who would uh, sort of clomp their way into a cinema and sit and watch escapist cinema you know just to get away from the slum that they lived in you know in yep. the poorest part of manila just so that they could uh, you know shuffle along in their wooden clogs and watch a film shown on on a sheet on the side of a truck powered by a diesel generator because their village doesn't have power that kind of thing, you know. Mm. So I think I think uh, Wang Wang's um, story is able to paint quite a vivid picture of just what it means to live in that situation, and mm. uh, and so the camera takes you literally into you know the neighborhood where Wang Wang grew up and uh, and got sick and died in. Mm. Um, the the same people who went to school with him in grade school are still living in the same street. Um, you know, we, we, we get to see Wang Wang's brother's house, the, the house of a of a, a simple jeepney driver uh, who now, unfortunately, uh, I found out when I went to visit him last, can't even drive a jeepney anymore because he has uh, complications from diabetes. Oh, yeah. Really sad. You know, yeah. I, I, yeah. luckily, um, luckily one of the TV stations um, interviewed me this morning for a TV, TV show later on this evening. Mm-hmm. And a couple of days ago, I managed to give them uh, Wang Wang's brother's phone number. And I said, look, if you want to do Wang Wang's story, go talk to the brother. And if someone can see the plight of the Dela Cruz family yeah. and, and see what kind of conditions that he's living in now because of, the, because of his medical condition, maybe someone out there is going to at least you know, give him a break. Yeah. At least just pay some of his medical bills. Some yeah. of the money that we're raising on Kickstarter... Uh, at least a thousand dollars is going to go towards his medical bills. Oh, fantastic! Um, in, in exchange for allowing us to use Wang Wang's yeah. likeness uh, yeah. in our in our material, that's my pledge to the Dela Cruz family because man, that that family has been through enough. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. You know, anyway. That no, well, this is this is what's great as well about your campaign. I mean, it's it's on Kickstarter, so therefore, uh, it's accessible to international backers can get behind you and throw some money to the campaign, and um, some yeah. of that can go towards obviously finalizing the film itself. But uh, as you say, if you can throw some to the family as well and maybe help them out, that'd be just fantastic. That that's all you can do. I mean, yeah. that that is is give back because really the the country. Over the last eight trips that I've been there, has given so much to me and has rolled out the red carpet. And it's you know it's almost a cliche to say that uh, that the people in the Philippines are warm and generous and giving. Mm. It, it's it's a reality. I mean, uh, I can't think of a less cynical, you know, and and more open open-hearted um, mm. country of people. I mean, it's just phenomenal, and and it's uh, it's it's almost. Um, it's it's almost like you go through a ritual cleansing process every time you go to the country that you are able to immerse yourself in a country that isn't part of the cynical West of the yeah. of the glib and the disdainful culture that we unfortunately live in, 
and which gives rise to this kind of uh, you know attitude that uh, a, a two foot nine midget you know doing karate is fucking hilarious yeah, without ever yeah. thinking that there there might be some humanity behind that karate kicking midget. This is why I'm interested in the project as well that you are able to through crowdfunding create a story here, present a story uh, that gives a new perspective on this uh, situation, and because you're going direct to the, your audience for funding. And you're, that that is a form of marketing in in and of itself, but it also you get immediate support. You're not having to package this for the tastes of backers or investors of a more private concern. Let's say you're actually going to the public with this, and this this is an example I think for other filmmakers of how to create a story that applies to a niche interest, but at the same time sustains itself. Is that something? Can you see this being a roadmap for other filmmakers maybe in the future to? use crowdfunding to get interesting and new stories out there? Uh, well, assuming that there aren't too many um, failed Kickstarter projects. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, that's uh, concerned. And, and, and people become incredibly immune to the idea or, or almost disdainful towards the idea of, um, of crowdfunding projects. Yeah. Uh, I, I can feel it at a certain point now that uh, I would say a good percentage of the population is sick and tired of hearing about their friends' projects on Kickstarter. Um, I mean, we're, we're quite lucky in that we, we've only had 186 backers. Mm. Um, but of those 186 backers, we've managed to get close to 16,000. Yeah. Um, that's almost a hundred dollars per backer, which is absolutely phenomenal. Mm. Um, that, that's why I, I do believe that, uh, in the final two and a half weeks of the campaign, we will get, uh, over the 30 grand mark because, um, there is such goodwill built up around the project and also around Wang Wang himself. Hmm. Um, uh, so, so I think that as long as Kickstarter is still able to um, not switch people off yep. uh, by, by Kickstarter oversaturating the crowdfunding uh, market or crowdfunding oversaturating the, the uh, film funding side hmm. of things, uh, I think that there are incredible opportunities for niche stories to reach niche audiences mm. because uh, we, we have two things going for us in addition to the idea of crowdfunding, and that is technology now being so affordable that you can make a feature film for $1,000, that yep. you can uh, deliver a finished product to a distributor for $10,000, um, that we are... Uh, only raising thirty grand for a, a documentary that needs music and clip rights and uh, and and another shoot in Manila and that sort of thing. Mm. For only thirty grand, we we're able to deliver to Monster Pictures down in Melbourne on first of August a finished film. Uh, I think secondly is uh, the reach of the internet and the fact that social networking now allows tribes to be able to find each other and to be able to communicate with each other more easily than at any point in history. Um, and um, between Facebook and Twitter and Blogger and uh, Instagram, I think you can pretty much within the space of uh, a Kickstarter campaign, four to eight weeks, you mm -hmm. can reach pretty much uh, the majority of your intended audience and have them evaluated online 
and then make a conscious decision whether to support your project or not. Yeah. Um, and, you know, crowdfunding technology, affordable technology and uh, internet uh, dialogue, that is basically your new model. I think this is, this is one that um, didn't exist five years ago. Um, it certainly didn't exist seven years ago when we started piecing Search for Wang Wang together initially. Mm. Uh, but it but it is a model that I think we can finish the movie on successfully, and we can uh, generate enough pre publicity before the film's release to not have to start publicizing a, a film from scratch. Yeah, that you've already established a bond of trust between yourself and your audience. One of the um, gimmicks, I guess you could call it, in the last few weeks of the campaign, we're going to announce in a couple of days is if you pledge and then take a photo of yourself uh, holding an I Heart Wang sign, we're going to put that in the closing credits. Oh. <laughs> Which I think is unbelievably cool. I think yeah. I got that idea from Love Actually. Uh, <laughs> don't so. tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Please. This... Let that be a, a little secret between the two of us. <laughs> We're recording, Andrew. <laughs> Dude, technology screwed me in the ass. <laughs> but there you go. There, there you go. I mean, this is part of it. Gonna see you. You're, you're, you're inviting your backers to become a part of the experience as well. They can become a part of the product. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the the the, the levels of incentives is we believe quite generous. If you go onto Kickstarter and you. Uh, choose between a $10 premiere ticket um, or a, a $30 bobblehead or a $25 t-shirt all the way up to, you know, we've got something called everything but the jetpack deal where you get, you know, a disc, a shirt, a bumper sticker, a spy pen, et cetera, et cetera. For another $100 on top of that, so for $200, you can get a, a, a thank you in the credits along with your everything but the jetpack deal for um two and uh, for a, a grand and a half you can get uh, a an executive producer credit oh, i beg your pardon an associate producer credit and um uh five hours of um online tutorials or, or conversations or whatever the hell you want mm. for 10 grand and this is the one that you know i think would be absolutely awesome to anyone who has a bucket of money and a passing interest in um Filipino midgets. For 10 grand, I will fly to Manila. I will put you up in the shittiest hotel that I can find in Makati, and we will go on a midget bar crawl from the house to the <laughs> We will take we will take to to visit Wang Wang's brother. We will have screenings galore. We will go out drinking with the the um, the uh, extras from Apocalypse Now, and I will take you on a pilgrimage to Wang Wang's grave. So if you can imagine also going on uh, the final search for Wang Wang shoots uh, mm. in late, late May, early, uh, early June, and having me as your personal tour guide in Manila, if that sounds like the sort of thing that you want to spend 10 grand on, buddy, sign up for Kickstarter now. I will take you by the hand through the streets of Makati. <laughs> I'll show you something. Make you change your mind. There you have it, folks. <laughs> There's a pitch for you. <laughs> midget loving <laughs> that's what he's offering you um okay <laughs> oh, 
There will be karaoke. <laughs> I'm reminded of um, uh, El Topo, or Yodorovsky's character has has this breakdown, and he emerges, and he falls in love with a little midget lady, and they do this little dance for the villagers. Have you ever seen El oh, Topo? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he, is one of my heroes. Yeah. Exactly. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal filmmaker. But that he does this cute little dance with this midget, and it's just it's the most adorable thing I've ever seen. <laughs> you just brought it to mind there. I don't know why. Um, yeah, it's not just a fetish, you know. <laughs> It's an almost religious experience. Come on. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well, if people can check out the Kickstarter campaign, throw a few shekels your way. I'm going to post the link on this in this podcast release as well. And also, you're expecting to have the film wrapped up. First uh, of August, we deliver it to Monster. Brilliant. If we uh, if we play our cards right, we're going to be. Um, touring it around Australian capital cities maybe later that month. Excellent. And come September, we start taking it overseas. So um, Philippines, Europe, North America, maybe even South America and uh, other Asian countries doing the Wang Wang Roadshow, you know, the Midget Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to mention as well some of the team with you. Drew Close who I happen to know he's done a oh. comic book called Golden Age, which I thought was very good, actually. Golden, uh, Golden Age is a work of art. Uh, seriously, click onto his um, website, capebillowing.com. Yep. He was also responsible for our incredible Kickstarter video and uh, and webpage and pretty much promotional campaign as well. He's, he's incredibly good at that. Daniel Polisa yes. is my co-writer and co-producer. He's been um, on five of my eight Filipino adventures. He was the guy trapped in the uh, first church of FPJ compound. He's been on many a midget bar crawl, so he will he will testify <laughs> to, to the healing powers of the Weng Weng cocktail as delivered by a small pair of hands. Um, <laughs> and uh, and um, and also uh, the incredible folk at Monster Pictures yes. Australia, uh, Neil Foley and Grant Hardy, who have been behind. Um, this film and also the idea of the film for as long as I've been um, uh, yelling at them uh, across bars all over the, Australia. Um, they they are probably the, one of the most innovative and supportive labels for uh, low-budget filmmaking, low-budget jo- low genre filmmaking as well, and also the masterminds behind uh, Monster Fest Australia yes. coming yes. to you in uh, October 2013. Yes, very good. Last year's was fantastic. So thanks very much, Andrew. Best look at the campaign. Uh, unreal. Thanks, Emmett. No worries. And I really can't wait to see that little man on the big screen again. Looking forward to it. I'll see it at the red carpet or the sticky carpet uh, in August. <laughs> All the best, man. Cheers. Thanks, Emmett.